I certainly appreciate Brother Tim's brief, as I thought, to the point message this morning. I hope you'll continue to pray for the remainder of the service. I'd like to begin with some of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. This 10th chapter of the Gospel of John is known as the Good Shepherd chapter. This is a chapter that Jesus reveals himself again as being the shepherd of the sheep. He said, I am the Good Shepherd, and the Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I want to emphasize and underscore that expression. The Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Karen read something this morning where someone had said that Jesus was murdered. Now, that's not true. That's, that's not accurate. Um, the Lord said he gives his life for the sheep. And then a few verses later, we find where, again, emphasizing him being the good shepherd, said the good shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a vicarious death. The word vicarious means it was a death in the room instead of someone else. It was a death of representation. Now it is true, over in the book of Acts 2, 23 and 24, where the apostle Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, made this statement. He said, him, talking about Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The Roman soldiers did put the nails in his hands. The Roman soldiers put the nails in his feet. The Roman soldiers took a sword and pierced his side. They indeed crucified the Son of God on Calvary. But they were not able to do any more than what Christ allowed them to do. Somebody said, how, how do we reconcile all that? All God's got to do is leave man to himself. All God's got to do is leave man to himself and his human nature, withdraw his presence, and man is capable of doing what they did to the Savior. Three times we're going to find in John's Gospel where Jesus says that he laid his life down. He laid his life down willingly. It wasn't against his will. John 6 and 38 and 39, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now the Father had a will, and the Son had a will, and those two wills are one and the same. I came down from heaven, that's where Jesus came from. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, as a will separate apart from that of the Father, but the will of him that sent me. The Father sent me, my will and the Father's will are one and the same. And this is the will of him that sent me, that all he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise up again at the last day. The reason the Lord said, I'll raise it up again at the last day is because he had already represented us in coming forth from the death, from death in the grave in his resurrection. Now let's look at John 10, 17 and 18. The Lord said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. That's the third time he said that. Then he said, No man taketh it from me. Now as we read the account of the sufferings of Christ, we know he went through a cruel and mocked trial which he was unjustly condemned. We find that Pilate finally issued out the death warrant to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ and the Roman soldiers came and took him away. And they led him up that road to Golgotha. And we find where they put him on a cross and they put the nails in his feet and his hands and they did indeed crucify the Savior. But I'm telling you that didn't contradict the words of Jesus. 
Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. And no man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself. Okay, I lay it down of myself. You know, when they came to get Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, Peter led a band of soldiers. And they came with spears and swords and lanterns. They came at night because that's when evil lurks and evil works is at nighttime. And they were led by Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ with that betrayal kiss. And the apostle Peter, in his zeal and love for the Lord, pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus told him to put his sword back up. <laughs> the Lord said, do you not know I could call at this time, and I could, the Father send me 12 legions of angels? A legion is 6,000. That's 72,000 angels. All the Savior had to say to the Father, send the angels. And 72,000 strong would have came and just taken right out of their hands. That's all they, all they were taken to do. But the Lord, in his mercy, his compassion, and display of his great power, reached down and took the ear of the servant of the high priest and placed it back on the side of his head and healed it. This man was his enemy. This man had come with others to take him away. But the Lord, in his compassion, and the Lord displaying his power, healed him there and told Peter to put his sword up. He that liveth by the sword shall die by the sword. Jesus came to lay his life down. He said, therefore doth my father love me because I lay it down that I might take it to myself. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And he's talking about laying it down the offering of sacrifice to the father and taking it again in the morning of the resurrection. The resurrection is real. The Lord Jesus Christ conquered death, conquered the grave, conquered the world, conquered Satan when he emerged victorious three days after being placed in that barred tomb. You know, if you go read the uh, account, the last uh, chapter of Matthew, the last chapter of Mark, the last chapter of Luke, and next to the last chapter of John, chapter 20, you'll get a good many details. That's very important to read. I encourage you to read all four of these accounts and put them all together to see the picture of what's before us here this morning and, and the meaning of it. As Brother Tim's already said, if there is no resurrection, then our preaching's in vain, our faith is in vain, we're among all men most miserable. The resurrection did several things. The resurrection declared that Jesus was the Son of God. It proved He was the Son. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Now concerning, uh, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the seed of David, according to the flesh, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Christ came forth from the dead, that was a declaration that he was who he said he was, that he was God's blessed Son. There could be no question about it, you see. And he'd be seen of many witnesses, and we may speak a little bit about that just a little bit later on. But by looking at the end of these chapters, again, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, we find where the Lord Jesus Christ was taken to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord Jesus Christ was taken to Pilate's judgment hall. There false witnesses testified against him. There we find where Pilate seemingly tried his best to get out of, you know, issuing the condemnation against Jesus, but finally he agreed to do it. And then we find where they took Jesus and led him away. 
Now, interesting enough, as they led him away, it would appear that Jesus started bearing his cross as he started toward Golgotha. But after a short distance, we find where somebody was drafted, Simon the Cyrenian, was drafted to take his cross upon him and to bear Jesus' cross the rest of the way. The guilty party in those days had to bear their own cross. They had to take the cross and take it all the way up there that they were going to be crucified on. But see, Jesus Christ in his own self was not guilty. And yet all the sins of all the elect family of God were placed upon him and were charged to him. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 teaches. For he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so as Simon the Cyrenian begins to bear the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's bearing it representing all of us because we're the guilty ones, you see. We're the ones that's guilty. And we need to bear our cross all the way to Calvary, but Simon's going to represent us with the Lord Jesus Christ to be the one that will hang upon the cross in our place. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ would hang upon that cross for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The Jews had different ways of coming up with, with the way they did their time, but one of the main ways was they started the day at 6, p, uh, 6 a.m. in the morning. We start ours at 12 a.m. He was crucified the third hour, make it 9 o'clock in the morning. And from 9 to 12, you're going to find where Jesus will speak three of his seven sayings on the cross. From 12 to 3, there shall be darkness, where no man can see the transaction taking place between heaven and earth, between the Father and the Son. And then you're going to find where the Lord will issue out his or the other four of the seven sayings. But each of these sayings, I just want to mention them briefly here this morning, is very meaningful. As Christ is put upon that cross at 9 a.m. in the morning from 9 to 12, we're going to find the first thing the Lord says is he says it to the Father. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I tell you, isn't that a, a statement uh, that's just uh, astonishing as far as I'm concerned? The treatment they had given him when they had smitten him aside the face, took the palms of their hands and smote his Smote him right here beside the face. They plucked the hair uh, uh, from, his, from his face. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They took, you know, a scourge. It opened up his back. All that took place, and they mocked him, and one thing and another. And yet as he hangs upon that cross with the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, he says to the Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would you have said that? I doubt it. I, I can't imagine me saying that, but... But the Savior said it. And I'm thankful he said it because when I see my own life, and I see the sins in my own life, how, how could God forgive somebody like me? But he has, Ephesians 1, 7 says, in whom, we've received, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Your sins were forgiven eternally, brother, when Christ died on the cross for you. But I'm so thankful that 1 John 1 and 9 is in the Bible where we're told, that he's just, if we confess our sins unto him, he's just uh, and faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I need to confess my sins to the Father. I'm thankful that the Father has a hearing ear. I'm thankful that the Father is sympathetic toward me. And if he can forgive me my transgressions, he can forgive me my iniquities, he can forgive me for my shortcomings, my failures here in life. But Jesus looks to the Father and says, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. I've never had anybody to crucify me. Never anybody has smitten me beside the face. No one's ever plucked the hair out of my cheeks. No one's ever put a crown of thorns on my back. Nobody's took a scourge and opened up my back, my friends, as they did the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there's been times somebody may have said something to me that I may have had a kind of a struggle saying, I, I forgive them. <laughs> I may have had a problem with it. You know, I had to overcome that. And Jesus said to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we find where the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to a thief. There's three crucified that day, two thieves in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is in the midst of them. And it's interesting to see the conversation that took place between those two thieves prior to what Jesus said to one of them. And both thieves were told railed in the face of Jesus. They both railed in his face. But then... A miracle of grace took place. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is just too much grace for some people. It's not too much for me. Uh, a miracle of grace took place because that thief, one of those two thieves, had a change of mind, a change of heart. And he turned to the other thief and rebuked him and said, this man has done nothing amiss. We're getting what we deserve. Now, I'm going to tell you, you have to see yourself to be a sinner to realize you get what you deserve because people who are not recognize, do not recognize themselves as a sinner. And I've said before, I can preach about sin, I can teach what sin is, I can teach you you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, etc., etc. But until the Spirit of God, my friends, arrests you and changes your heart, it's just water, uh, just like water going off a duck's back. That's what it takes for you to recognize and realize that you're a, in, in your conscience you indeed are a sinner. Here's the thief, along with the other thief in the beginning rails on the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he has a change of mind because he had a change of heart. The Lord spoke to him like the Lord says he does to all the elect family of God in John 5, 25. We said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Sometime in my past life, in my past experience, when I was just a small uh, uh, young person, the Lord spoke to me, but I, I, I do not ever remember hearing a loud, audible voice speaking to me. But a voice spoke to me and changed my heart. He didn't ask me to let him in. He just came on in. He didn't ask me for permission. He didn't ask me, to. Uh, is it okay if I come in and, and work with you? And the Lord just went ahead and did it. And the Lord just did it, you see. And so the Lord did the same thing to one of these thieves here. And the thief turns to the other thief and he rebukes him says, this man is nothing, nothing amiss. See, he recognized the one in the middle was pure and perfect and holy and righteous. And he recognized that he and the other thief were just pure sinners. He says, we get what we deserve. And then he turned to the Savior. And he said to the Lord, he says, when thou comest to thy kingdom, remember me. What could have brought about such a traumatic change where he's railing on Christ at one moment and the next moment, he's rebuking the thief and saying to the Savior, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I want the Lord to remember me, don't you? Because <laughs> I have failed to remember him so many times, but I know he will never forget me. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Savior turned to him his second saying. And he says, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Paradise, another word for heaven. 
When's he going to be when Jesus is in heaven? That very day. That very day when the Lord left this world, my friends, in his own spirit, when he committed his spirit to the hands of the Father, I'm telling you, the spirit of that thief went right straight into glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the Bible gives us this example to teach us that we should not try to judge the lives of other people from the standpoint of their eternal standing. Because we simply don't know. Because God can take care of the situation in the 11th hour. He did for this thief right here, you see. The Lord gives us another example of a man being born of the Spirit in his mother's womb in John the Baptist, which I believe God, generally speaking, borns his people uh, early on in life so they can fulfill Ecclesiastes 1, when Psalmist says, Remember thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Now, how are you going to do that if you're not in your youth? When do you remember the Lord in the days of thy youth, in your young days? You remember him when you give him your best, your best mind, your best, your best uh, uh, strength, your best life in every aspect, my friends. And then the Lord gives an example of Saul of Tarsus being born again on the Damascus Road. We got somebody born again before they ever see the light of day in John the Baptist. When Mary came there and John leapt for joy in his mother's womb, oh, he, he leapt for joy. I'm talking about spiritual activity right here, brethren. And Saul of Tarsus, as he was arrested and struck down that Damascus road, he was heading to Damascus to continue persecuting the Lord's church. He continued the journey. Instead of persecuting the Lord's church, he went there and preached the glorious gospel to them. And then we have the thief at the 11th hour hanging upon that cross. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And that teaches me when we pass this scene of life, when our loved ones have drawn their last breath, I don't have any question what takes place. I don't see the spirit depart. I've been around several people when they took the last breath. My father, my mother, and different ones. I didn't see anything leave the body, but I know it did. I know the spirit left that body. The soul left that body. Went right into glory to be with the Lord and Jesus Christ in paradise. Just like the spirit of that thief did, you see. And then the Lord, as he hangs from the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother. And he sees the apostle John. And he says to John, Behold thy mother. He says to his mother, Behold thy son. Now the Savior has nails in his hands. Crucifixion is known as one of the most painful, excruciating, painful experiences a person could ever go through. And Jesus has to be in great agony, in great pain, in great suffering. And yet we see that the love he had for that disciple of his mother is on his mind. He looks down at his mother and says, Behold thy son. Talking about John. He says to John, Behold thy mother. And from that day forward, John took his mother into his care. The Lord Jesus Christ cared for his loved ones. He cared for his mother. And on that final day, my friends, as she's there looking up at her beloved son hanging on that cross, can you imagine what was in her heart? I believe that's what the angel had meant when he told her, a sword shall pierce through to thy soul. That's not the only time, but I think that was probably his most painful experience, the most painful time that ever took place in the life of that wonderful woman named Mary. Then we have three hours of darkness that takes place from 12 to 3. You know, when God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, the ninth plague was three days of darkness. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. Well, on the cross, Jesus Christ will experience not three days, but three nights of darkness. And we're going to see the victory of the firstborn. Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, isn't he? 
Romans 8, 29 and 30, over whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn among many brethren. See, Christ is the firstborn of the Father. That word there means unique. It means uh, uh, rank and dignity. He's the firstborn among many brethren. Now, he has many brethren that he died for, but he's the firstborn of them. And while in Egypt it was the opposite, there was the three days of total darkness, so dark you couldn't even uh, you couldn't, uh, see. It was so dark. And then it was followed by the death of the firstborn. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ experienced his three hours of darkness, only to be followed later by a victory, my friends, of the firstborn of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would live. He would die, but yet he would live. And at the end of that three hours of darkness, we find some other sayings of Jesus. See, three before darkness ever came. We see three now, or four, is going to take place here. Going to find where the Lord is going to declare. I think this may be the last saying here. In John chapter 19 and verse 30. It's this one or either the one where he says, In thy hands I commend my spirit. But we're going to find where the Lord says it is finished. Now, that's what the truth of the Bible teaches. The truth of the Bible teaches a finished work of Jesus. It teaches that the work that Jesus Christ came to do was accomplished. It was finished. Uh, and when he says it's finished, his way of finishing a work is different the way that I finish my work. And I've mentioned this in times past, I know. But how many times have you finished something only doing the same thing the next day? How many times do women finish washing the dishes? I'll be washing them again the next day. How many times do women finish washing the clothes? I'll be washing them again the next day. How many times do people finish mowing the grass? I'll be mowing it the next week. <laughs> as much rain as having is almost the next day. You know, that's our, that's our concept of finishing something because we know no matter what we've done and how we've got it done, we know we're going to be doing it again in just a few days. But when the Lord said it is finished, never again will he hang upon a cross. Never again will he have to make an offering and sacrifice. Never again will he shed his precious blood. Never, never again will he do that, you see. He bowed his head. He cried aloud and said, it is finished. And the Bible says, he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. He, he gave it up. Jesus Christ, that shows a picture of a man in total control all the way through. He gave it up at the end. He bowed his head in total control. His head just didn't fall to his chest. He bowed his head. And he gave up, his go, gave up the ghost. And then in the Gospel of Luke, we find where he says, he prayed to the Father, and he said, Father, into thy hands I commend thy spirit. Now, prior to these two statements, the Lord Jesus Christ will fulfill Psalms 22.1. And one of the sayings is this, he cried aloud, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? See, Christ came in humanity so that he couldn't die. Christ could not die as a son of God. Divinity cannot die. But he cries aloud, My God, my God. I want you to notice, up until this time, Christ has always referred to God as his Father. But not now. Not now. He says, My God, my God, because you see, things have changed. It's changed from a father-son relationship to a God-man relationship. I want you to get that. We have a God-man relationship here now. Here's God looking upon man, but this man's the son of man. This man is the man. <laughs> and Jesus cries, 
He says, my God, my yes, he was his God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If God had not forsaken the Savior, my friends, uh, he then would have to forsake you. But he will never forsake you, he'll never forsake me because it required him forsaking his son just for a little while. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The relationship changes again from father-son to God-man. And then the Lord says, it is finished. He bows his head and gives up the ghost. Then he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the spirit of the Lord and Jesus Christ left, my friends, went right into heaven's pure world. Now, something else took place that was supernatural on that occasion. There was a, a great earthquake. And the veil of the temple was written half from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. If man had written that in veil, he hadn't written it from the bottom to the top. But see, man didn't written this veil. God did. God written this veil from top to bottom because there was a barrier between God and his people that's been removed now. It's been taken out of the way. Aren't you thrilled about that? Aren't you thrilled now that you have total access into heaven? When you pray to God, my friends, your prayers go right through the Savior, right to the Father. There's no barrier. There's nothing there to separate you from God because God has now reconciled you back unto him. Reconciliation has taken place. There was an earthquake when God gave the law at Sinai. There's an earthquake here when Christ is crucified at Calvary. But my friends, we find the law being satisfied at Calvary. It was issued out at Sinai. It's being satisfied at Calvary. Jesus Christ satisfied the law. Romans 10, 4 says, Christ is the end of the law to everyone that believeth. That means he's the fulfillment of the law. Remember what he said to the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, think not I've come. Think not that I've come to destroy the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. The law was good. The law, though, demanded perfection. And God looked for perfection. <laughs> there was none. There was no perfection. He looked and there was none to help. Twice in Isaiah we find that recorded. He looked and there was none to help. I'm telling you, people say, well, we've got to help God. Prepare men for eternity. <laughs> God doesn't need help for that. All right? He's got it under control. He's got it under control. The Bible says he looked and there was none to help. Why was that? There was nobody qualified. You had, you had to be perfect. You had to be holy. You had to be righteous. You had to be sinless. There was none qualified. Do you think you would qualify? I would qualify. You know of anybody else that would qualify? There's only one who qualified, and that was Jesus. And aren't you glad he was willing <laughs> to leave heaven? I, I tell you, I, I think about this oftentimes. When Jesus left heaven, he knew ahead of time what to expect. He knew ahead of time that he'd be despised and rejected of men, just like Isaiah said he would. He knew ahead of time he'd be wounded for our transgressions. He knew that he'd uh, be bruised for our iniquities like Isaiah said he would. He knew ahead of time about all the painful things that would take, take place in his life that I've already mentioned here this morning prior to the crucifixion and then the crucifixion itself. He knew all of that. He knew he'd be despised. He knew he'd be ridiculed. He knew he would be uh, somebody you know, that would be blasphemed here in this world. They said, you know, he called him a gluttonous man and a wine beaver and the friend of sinners. I thank God he was not guilty of one and two, but guilty of three. 
He was not a wine bearer. He was not a gluttonous man. But thank God he was the friend of sinners. And thank God he's still the friend of sinners. He knew all of that. And he came anyway. <laughs> I just mentioned to you that Karen and I had a wonderful trip down to Birmingham. And prior to the trip, uh, of course, I heard from the pastor. I heard from different ones how much they was uh, uh, looking forward to the meeting, looking forward to us coming down, one thing and another. And they always wanted to know, is Sister Karen coming? Is Sister Karen coming? And uh, I always have to tell them, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see, because if I say no, they'll, they'll withdraw the invitation. <laughs> so you can come if Karen's coming, but if she don't come, we'll get you another time. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, if I knew before we left to go down there, I was going to be mistreated just a tenth of what the Lord Jesus Christ was, I wouldn't have went. I'd have stayed home. I'd have stayed home. I wouldn't have gone there to endure such suffering as he did. But that's the miracle of God's amazing and wondrous love. That's why the psalmist said, I believe in Psalms 119, 18, Open thou mine eyes, I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. I don't know of anything more wondrous, brother, than that you can behold out of the word of God than the everlasting love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That his great love, why he left us, even we were dead in trespasses and sin. No wonder the hymn writer said, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul. The Lord said, I have the power to lay it down, and I've got power to take it again. And so they take him off that cross, and God has prepared two men, Joseph Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus, to take care of the situation. And Joseph Arimathea, he goes to Pilate, and he begs the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate, first of all, before we give him an answer, has to make sure that he's dead. And the centurion him come back and give the reply, yes, yes, he's dead. And that, that caused Pilate to marvel that he could be dead so quickly because he had sent soldiers out, you know, to break the legs of the thieves to bring about a, a sooner death. But when the thieves came, when the soldiers came back, the report was, we didn't have to break his legs. He was already dead. You know why he was already dead? Because he laid his life down. That's why. Uh, the soldiers didn't break his legs, even though they were commanded to. And then the Lord, uh, the soldiers pierced his side, which they were not commanded to do. But that was all took place that the scriptures of the Old Testament would be fulfilled. Had they not pierced his side, the scripture would have been broken. Had they uh, broke the legs of the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture would have been broken. But the scriptures declared not a bone in his body shall be broken, and it was not. And when I think about nails going through his hands and nails through his feet and a sword piercing his side, and then, brethren, to realize not a bone of his body was broken, it, it's amazing, extraordinary, it's miraculous that could have happened and that take place. Brian Cheney, when he talks about not being broken, there's a lot of things that God's done that'll never be broken. And one is that he uh, put forth an everlasting covenant that shall never be broken. His promises shall never be broken. His word shall never be broken. And so we find them taking the body of Christ down from that cross and they take all so great care of it. I can just visualize those two men now as they, they're handling the Savior. He's lifeless, but they're holding Jesus. Lifeless. You know, I think about Simeon as he held Jesus when he was uh, uh, just a few days old there in the temple. But he was just a little baby. He was holding his arms. But now Nicodemus and, and Joseph Arimathea are holding a lifeless body. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're going to put it in Joseph's new tomb. And then you're going to find where the soldiers come to Pilate. And they're going to tell Pilate, they says, you know, while he was here, we remember him saying, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. And uh, Pilate said, well, you just go and make it just as sure as you can. Go make it just as sure as you can. 
Well, they made it as sure as they could, but they just couldn't make it sure enough, could they? Now, let's go back here to Acts 2, 23 and 24 just for a moment. When the apostle Peter says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel of full knowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Did you hear those words? He loosed the pains of death. God did. He said, because it was not possible that death should hold him. I'm telling you, it's possible for death to hold me. <laughs> it's possible for death to hold you, but it was not possible for death to hold the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd already stated again several different times how he'd be raised again after the third day. There were some women that watched this scene. I want you to uh, know that the last people at the cross, by the way, and the last people there at the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ was the women, the sisters. And on the first day of the week, you're going to find where they come to the sepulcher and they contemplate a problem before they ever get there. They contemplate the problem that who's going to roll the stone away? This is just a, not an easy task. This is a great big heavy stone. Who's going to roll the stone away? But you know what? The thought of who's going to roll the stone away didn't keep them from going to the sepulcher. <laughs> I like to be around God's people who don't get just thrown off course by the first little problem comes along. You know, yeah, we got a problem. Somehow or another, we believe it to be solved. Somehow or another, God will work it out. Somehow or another, God will find a solution. I like being around people like that, don't you? I really do. Anyway, who's going to roll the stone away? What would they got there? The Bible tells us we put these accounts together. A great earthquake came, an angel came down and rolled the stone away. You ever had some stones rolled away in your life? You ever had difficulties removed in your life that you wondered, how in the world will I ever get through this? How can I get over this? How can I get around this? How can I get under this? And you can't find a way under, around, or over it. But you took and put it in the hands of the Lord, and the Lord comes along and just takes care of it. Just takes care of it. The angels came and rolled the stone away. And you'll find in these accounts where one writer gives an account of two angels, and the, you're going to find where Mary, Magdalene, the other Marys find three surprises when they get there to that tomb. The first surprise is the stone's rolling away. The second prize is when they meet those angels there. And the third surprise is when they look in, they don't see a body in there. It's an empty tomb. You go to John's Gospel, chapter 20, you'll find where Mary runs with excitement back, and she tells Peter, and you find where Peter and John run to the sepulcher. And they get to that sepulcher, and you're going to find where, I believe it's uh, John gets there first, and he just... Uh, uh, stops there, but here comes Peter. He comes just barreling on through, and he goes, goes right in there. And you know what they find? They find the grave clothes of the Lord Jesus Christ, not wrinkled, not wadded up, not one on the floor and one over here somewhere. They find the linen cloth he was wrapped in nice and neat over here. They find the napkin all folded over here. You know what that tells me? That tells me Christ was resurrected right through the grave clothes. You know, when I take my clothes off, I always fold them up nicely 95% of the time. And I hang them up. I get home today, I'll take my suit off, I'll hang it up nice as I can, I'll hang it in the closet. I want it to be as nice as it can when I get it back down again. Some people don't do that. <laughs> but the best I do sometimes uh, is not good enough. But I'm telling you, the grave clothes of the Lord Jesus Christ was left there orderly. 
the napkin over here, the linen cloth all over here. It was not wrinkled. It was not uh, wadded up. It wasn't, uh, you know, mixed up. It, it tells me Christ just came right out of that. Somebody says, well, how did Christ get out of the tomb if the stone, stone wasn't rolled away to the third day? He just came right out. It didn't matter. He just passed right out of there. When they came there and that stone was rolled away, it was not letting Jesus out. It was they could bow down and look in and see he wasn't in there. The risen Savior, my friends, Savior triumphed over death just like he said he would. And here's what the angel said. And I, I just love the, the two expressions I read about the angel saying to, to Mary and them. They said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Come on. Come on, look. Come see the place where the Lord lay. He's not here. He's risen, as he said. At least four times in Matthew's gospel, before you get to Matthew 28 and read this, at least four times prior to that, the Lord had said he'd come out after three days. The first one was in Matthew 12, 40, in answer to the, to the Pharisees wanting a sign. He says, no sign should be given thee except the sign of Jonas being in the bed of the whale for three days and three nights. And as Jonas is in the bed of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then three more times after that, he tells them that he shall be betrayed in the hands of the chief priests, scribes, and elders. They shall take him. He shall be killed and crucified, and he'll be raised again the third day. They said, he's not here as he said. As he said. Why was Mary and them there? You'll find they was carrying spice. You know what they thought they were going to find? They thought they were going to find a body. But they didn't. And the angel says, come and see. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And one asked them the question, why seek you the living among the dead? You're in the wrong place. The Lord said, I'll rise from the grave and I'll meet you in Galilee. They'd forgotten all about that. I tell you, if you're going to lose something, uh, if you lose something, you're going to find it where you lost it, aren't you? <laughs> and the so, and, and, uh, best way I know to find something you've lost is to quit looking for it after a while. Wait till you lose something else. While you're looking for something else, you'll find the first thing you lost. So sometimes it pays you to lose something else on purpose, just so you find the first thing you lost before. But anyway, why seek you to living among the dead? You're in the wrong place here. If you want to find Jesus, this is not where you need to be. You need to go to Galilee where he said he'd meet you, just like he said, and that's where he did. Now I'm beginning to look at how the Lord Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, he's going to spend 40 days on this earth here, and by many infallible proofs, proofs declare that he was who he said he was. You'll notice the Lord Jesus Christ never shows himself to Pilate, never shows himself to Herod, never shows himself to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, never shows himself to the unbelievers in that day. He only shows himself to the disciples. Only the disciples. The first person he shows himself to is Mary Magdalene. Then he shows himself to the other women. Last at the grave, first, uh, last at the cross, first at the grave were the women. Then he showed himself to Peter. And we're not told exactly when that was and where that was, but we know he did. He showed himself to Peter. Then we find where he showed himself to the disciples three different times, twice behind closed doors. And then when he showed himself there in the Sea of Galilee, showed himself there. And then we find where he showed himself to those two disciples walking on the road to Damascus. That's one of my favorite stories in the Bible when he showed himself there to those disciples. In the beginning, their eyes were holding where they couldn't recognize him. But after a while, when he was in the house, he blessed the meal, advanced out of their sight. They said, did not our hearts burn within us 
the thing that most of God's people are lacking today is spiritual heartburn. I'm telling you, uh, you, ought to, you, ought to, you ought to desire that. You ought to desire to have your heart burning with the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. It's what the gospel is. It's the good news and glad tidings of, of what I'm trying to preach to you here this morning. That we believe in a risen Savior. We believe in a triumphant Savior. We believe in a resurrected Savior. We believe in a reigning Savior. We believe in a Savior on the right hand of the majesty on God who's making intercession for the saints of God. We believe in a returning Savior. That's what we're waiting on, isn't it? In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, you'll find after John saw that resurrected Christ, it says he fell at the feet of Jesus as if he were dead. When you read about his experience in the Gospel of John, you'll find where John was always leaning on the breast of Jesus, but not this time. This time he's at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus takes and puts his right hand upon him, I believe tenderly and kindly and lovingly, and he says, fear not. <laughs> I'm the first and I'm the last. He said, I'm he that liveth, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and death. I'm telling you, brother, it's, it's, it's complete. Like, like Tim said, uh, it, it's, a, it's a done deal. It, it, it's finished. He says, I'm living right now. Yes, I was dead. I was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, but I'm no longer dead. I'm alive and well, and I'm on the right hand of the majesty on high, and I've got the keys of hell and death in my hand, and you don't have to fear eternity because I've taken care of it. You don't have to fear life because Jesus Christ is life. And you don't have to fear death because he conquered death. And when he came out of that grave after three days and three nights, and then he spent 40 days on this earth, I love that glorious scene in Acts chapter 1 when it says, after he'd further instructed the apostles, it says he was taken up in a cloud. I want you to visualize this. He was taken up in a cloud. Think about it. He was taken up into a cloud. And as those disciples were viewing this, looking steadfastly toward heaven, not into heaven, but toward heaven, two angels appeared and said, Why stand ye gazing, ye men of Galilee? This same Jesus you see going away shall in like manner come again. I believe that with all my heart. I believe he's coming back again. If my daddy left me and said, Don't worry, I'll be back, I'd be looking for him every day. My dad was a man of truth. But I'm telling you, something might happen beyond his control. He might not make it back. But I'm telling you, there's no such thing as the possibility of Jesus not making it back. The Lord's coming back, isn't he? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, under those that look for him, are you looking for him? If you are, this is the text is for you. And under those that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? He came the first time to deal with sin. He's coming back the second time, brother, to gather you together, the entire family of God, and take you into heaven's pure world. And we'll close this morning by looking at the first few verses of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. Paul said, I not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them which are sleep in Christ, such as sorrow not even those which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, notice, if we believe that, and that if there doesn't mean it's a possibility, he didn't. And if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those which shall sleep with Christ shall God bring with him. For he shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And they which are asleep in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort ye one another with these words. 
These words are only comforting to those who know them, to those who read them, to those who hear them proclaimed and declared and preached. And to those that do, brother, these are words of great comfort to know there's going to be a reunion one day where nobody will be missing and nobody will be late and nobody's going to be left behind. It will all be taken right into heaven. Isn't that the reunion of all reunions? I love family reunions when they're held on Saturdays. I don't know when the Lord's coming back for this reunion, but if it's on a Sunday, that'd be fine with me. <laughs> He'll just wrap it all up, won't he? He'll just wrap it all up and we'll be with him in heaven's pure world. I'm telling you, it's, it's amazing. The gospel's an amazing thing. It's, it's good news and glad tidings of those who have a hunger and thirst in their hearts for the truth about the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, Jesus said, I got power to lay it down and I got power to take it again. And he did it.